Inna yubayi'unaka innama yubayi'unallaha yadullahi fawqa aydihim Faman nakatha fa'innama yankuthu ala nafsihi Waman awfa bima ahada alayhullahu fasayu'tihi ajran azima Sayakulu lakal mukhallafuna minal arabi shagolatna amwaluna wa ahluna fastaghfir lana Yakuluna bi alsinatihim ma laysa fi qulubihim Kul faman yamliku lakum min Allahi shay'an in arada bikum dharran aw arada bikum naf'an bal kana Allahu bima ta'maluna khabira Indeed those who pledge allegiance to you O Muhammad they are actually pledging allegiance to Allah The hand of Allah is over their hands so he who breaks his word only breaks it to the detriment of himself. And he who fulfills that which he has promised to Allah, he will give him a great reward. Those who remain behind of the Arabs will say to you, Our properties and our families occupied us, so ask forgiveness for us. They say with their tongues what is not within their hearts. Saying, then who could prevent Allah at all if he intended for you harm or intended for you benefit? Rather, ever is Allah of what you do aware. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Season 6 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season... We are discussing 100 years of Middle Eastern history after the fall of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 6-4, Abdul Aziz and Arabia. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. In the 18th century, a Muslim scholar named Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab begins teaching his literalist interpretation of Islam in Central Arabia. Abdul Wahhab teams up with a local governor named Muhammad ibn Saud to conquer Arabia. Within a century, this new Saudi kingdom stretches from the Hejaz to modern-day Iraq. The Ottoman Sultan asks Muhammad Ali Pasha to deal with the Saudis. Muhammad Ali Pasha's son, Ibrahim Pasha, finally defeats the Saudis in 1818. And with that, let's discuss the origins of modern Egypt. If you'd like to support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content, then become a member of Islamic History Exclusive. We have two membership levels, one free and one paid. At the free level, you get access to Season 0, Season 1, and all bonus episodes. The paid membership level is only $48 a year and gets you everything in the free level plus additional content such as the story of Ibn Zubair, the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and inshallah, 
much more to come. For more information, visit IslamicHistoryX.com. The Origins of Modern Egypt Muhammad Ali Pasha, the semi-independent ruler of Egypt who destroyed the first Saudi state in 1818, is considered the founder of modern Egypt. Interestingly, Muhammad Ali Pasha was not born in Egypt and was not an Arab. Born in Greece to an Albanian family in 1769, Muhammad Ali Pasha became the Wali, or ruler of Egypt, in 1805. Though Muhammad Ali Pasha enjoyed great independence, he was still technically a vassal of the Ottoman Empire. Muhammad Ali Pasha and his son Ibrahim Pasha came close to overthrowing the Ottomans in Istanbul. This happened not just once, but twice. Muhammad Ali Pasha and Ibrahim Pasha both died in 1848. In 1868, Ibrahim's son, Ismail Pasha, became the new ruler of Egypt. Also known as Ismail the Magnificent, Ismail Pasha operated independently of the Ottomans, only giving them token allegiance and an annual payment. In return, the Ottomans gave Ismail Pasha the title Khadiv, meaning vice-king, and generally left him alone. Considered the last great independent ruler of the Khadivate, Ismail the Magnificent had very ambitious goals for Egypt. Perhaps his greatest and most ambitious project was a canal to connect the Mediterranean Sea with the Red Sea. In 1869, Ismail's vision became a reality and the Suez Canal opened, changing Egypt and the Middle East forever. Hundreds of schools, railways, and parks were built in this new Egypt, fashioned after the European cities Ismail studied in as a young man. Another ambitious idea Ismail had was a giant statue of a woman dressed in classical robes erected near the mouth of the Suez Canal. This statue would represent Egypt's progress and status as the gateway to Asia. A French artist was commissioned for the project and construction began in Paris. But when it was nearly complete and Ismail Pasha was quoted the price of the statue, he balked. By this time, Ismail's ambitions had finally caught up with him, having borrowed and spent Egypt nearly into bankruptcy. He was forced to cancel the statue project. Undeterred, the French artist decided to gift the statue to the United States if the Americans would pay for its pedestal. In 1886, the giant copper statue was unveiled on a small island between New York and New Jersey. While the Americans were celebrating their new symbol of liberty, Egypt was struggling under crushing debt. Ismail Pasha had no choice but to sell Egypt's shares in the Suez Canal to Great Britain and France, essentially giving up control of the country's most valuable asset. This angered the Egyptian people who revolted, forcing the Ottoman Sultan to depose Ismail Pasha in favor of his son, Taufik Pasha. This did nothing to appease the Egyptians who continued to riot. 
The continued unrest in Egypt worried the British and French who now had a canal to protect. In 1882, Britain sent troops to Egypt, eventually crushing the rebellion. With order restored, Britain decided they had to stay in Egypt so they could maintain the peace. But no one was fooled. The British stayed because they wanted to control the canal. The British occupation of Egypt, which was still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, would last another 40 years. During this time, the same dynasty that descended from Muhammad Ali Pasha continued to rule Egypt. But just like the Ottoman Empire, they ruled in name only. World War I came in 1914 and the British were now at war with the Ottomans. Britain declared Egypt a protectorate, managing its fight against the Ottomans from its offices in Cairo. In order to secure its cooperation in the war, the British promised Egypt its independence. Egyptian soldiers played a critical role in the success of the Arab revolt. Hence, when the war was over, Egyptian officials expected the British to honor their promise. On November 13, 1918, an Egyptian delegation met with the British High Commissioner of Egypt, Reginald Wingate, to discuss a timeline for independence. But the British never intended for Egypt to be truly independent. In their arrogance, the British actually believed the Egyptians preferred living under occupation. The British also wanted to maintain control of the canal. As discussed in episode 5-22, Great Britain had a grand plan to connect its global empire after the war. Egypt and Palestine played a critical role in that plan. With Egypt on one side and Palestine on the other, the British wanted to use the Suez Canal to connect Europe and the Mediterranean Sea with its colonies in Africa and South Asia. The leader of the Egyptian delegation was Saad Zaghloul, a former judge and Egyptian politician. When it became clear the British were not going to honor their promises, he began a grassroots movement. Saad Zaghloul began building local support for independence, which encouraged other Egyptian activists and politicians to do the same. Before long, there were multiple independence movements operating in Egypt at the same time. The British High Commissioner Reginald Wingate demanded Egyptian Sultan Ahmed Fuad use force against the activists. Not wanting to appear as a British puppet, Sultan Ahmed wisely refused. Saad Zaghloul stepped up his activities and demanded to attend the post-war peace conferences in January 1919. The British responded by banning him from speaking in public. In a remarkable show of solidarity, Sultan Ahmed's ministers resigned in protest over the British ban. The British, who were dealing with a growing resistance in Turkey, riots in Iraq, and unrest in Syria, could not understand why their Egyptian subjects were so suddenly agitated. They still believed the majority of Egyptians appreciated British rule, and it was only rabble-rousers like Saad Zaghloul causing these problems. In March 1919, the British arrested Saad Zaghloul and his supporters and exiled them to the island of Malta. With these troublemakers out of the way, the British expected the appreciative masses of Egypt to settle into quiet subservience. 
To their great surprise, the arrests sparked massive demonstrations, riots, and strikes throughout Egypt. Demonstrations against British rule took off in Alexandria, Cairo, and throughout the Delta region. Christian Egyptians and Muslim Egyptians, secular Egyptians and religious Egyptians, they all joined together to protest British occupation. The British were horrified. Still under the delusion the Egyptians loved them, they were convinced there had to be some outside element causing these problems. Some British officials believed Ottoman loyalists operating in Egypt were responsible. Others believed it had to be the Bolsheviks. Perhaps Russian agents in Egypt were spreading anti-British propaganda. Still, others suspected it might be German intelligence intent on disrupting the peace talks in France. As the British pointed fingers, the demonstrations turned violent. On March 18, 1919, eight British soldiers were ambushed and killed while on patrol. Fearing the entire country would erupt into chaos, the British sent General Allenby, who had conquered much of the Levant from the Ottomans, to contain the situation. General Allenby arrived on April 7, 1919, and immediately began making concessions to the Egyptians. The first thing he did was promise the release of Saad Zaghlou. This went a long way in easing tensions, but there was still a good deal of unrest. That summer, thousands of British troops arrived in Egypt helping to restore some order. But there was still an unspoken tension with the occasional riot and demonstration. For the next three years, the British struggled in Egypt. They received no help from the Egyptian elite as both the sultan and prominent Egyptian politicians sided with the people. They demanded full independence and not simply British token recognition of autonomy. But this was something the British just refused to do. The Suez Canal was critical to their imperial goals and they were not about to give that up. This impasse forced the British to send more soldiers into Egypt and build up its military capabilities in the Canal Zone. And since the local Egyptian political establishment refused to cooperate, this essentially became a military occupation. By the end of 1921, Egypt was still in protest mode, with riots taking place nearly every week. The British imposed martial law and exiled Saad Zaghloul yet again. The following February, with the Allied plans for the Middle East falling apart, the British decided to meet the Egyptians halfway. There were just too many things going on in the Middle East at the time, and the British were at the end of their rope. Mustafa Kemal was offering stiff resistance to the Greeks in Anatolia. Arab nationalists and Zionists were causing unrest in Palestine. And Abdul Aziz ibn Saud was threatening to invade Transjordan. In February 1922, Great Britain granted Egypt independence. Sort of. Britain retained control of the canal, Egypt's foreign relations, Egypt's communications, and the Sudan. Additionally, Britain insisted on the right to protect foreign interests in Egypt as well as religious and ethnic minorities. Though it was not the full and true independence Egypt wanted, it was a step in that direction. The Sultan and his cabinet accepted this deal and the independent Sultanate of Egypt was born.
the second Saudi state. The Saudis started rebuilding a few years after Muhammad Ali Pasha and Ibrahim Pasha destroyed the first Saudi state in 1818. It all started in 1824 when Turkey Ibn Abdullah captured Riyadh and made it his capital. Turkey's father, Abdullah ibn Saud, had been defeated by the Pashas, then sent to Istanbul, where he was executed. Turkey hoped to recreate his father's legacy by creating a new Saudi kingdom in the Najd. Ten years after capturing Riyadh, Turkey was killed and his son Faisal took over the regime. Faisal carried on his father's dream, extending Saudi authority east towards the Persian Gulf. The Egyptians, who governed the region on behalf of the Ottomans, captured Faisal and sent him into exile. But Faisal escaped and returned to the Najd, where he ruled until his death in 1865. Faisal was succeeded by his son, Abdurrahman, who was the first Saudi to establish a connection with the British. Saudi ambitions in Arabia were kept in check by the Rashidi family, founded by Abdullah ibn Rashid in 1835. Like the Egyptians and the Hashemites, the Rashidis were also Ottoman vassals with their capital in Ha'il in northwestern Arabia. In the late 1880s, infighting within the Saudi family weakened their authority and the Rashidis took advantage of the situation. In 1891, the new Rashidi leader, Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Rashid, invaded Riyadh and deposed Abdurrahman. He then exiled the Saudi family to Kuwait on the Persian Gulf. Like Egypt, Kuwait was technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but really under British control. When the Saudis arrived in Kuwait, they pursued a relationship with the British, eventually becoming their client. While in exile, the Saudis also received a stipend from the Ottoman government in the hopes they'd stay out of trouble. But that was not to be. Abdurrahman's son, Abdul Aziz, was born in Riyadh in 1875, 15 years before the Rashidi takeover. Like the rest of the Saudi family, Abdul Aziz spent much of his young life in exile in Kuwait where he dreamed of re-establishing his family's greatness. But in order to do that, he'd first have to go through the Rashidis. That opportunity came when Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Rashid died in 1897. The Kingdom of the Najd With the death of Muhammad ibn Abdullah ibn Rashid, Abdul Aziz ibn Abdurrahman, commonly known as Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, convinced his father to launch an attack against the Rashidis. The Saudis rode horses and camels into battle. They used traditional Arab fighting tactics that were centuries old. The Rashidis, on the other hand, used modern weapons and nearly annihilated the Saudis. The Rashidis chased the Saudis back to Kuwait where Abdul Aziz's father declared he was done with warfare and politics. He wanted to spend the rest of his life peacefully in Kuwait. But Abdul Aziz was not ready to retire just yet. Four years after his first failed assault on the Rashidis, Abdul Aziz came up with another plan. Realizing he could not beat the Rashidis in open battle, he decided to use stealth and deception instead. 
In 1901, at the age of 24, Abdul Aziz formed a band of 40 warriors. This small band included some of his cousins and a few local Bedouins. Abdul Aziz quietly led the band out of Kuwait, then south towards Rubul Khali. Rubul Khali means the empty quarter in Arabic. It is a large, nearly empty desert region in southern Arabia. Encompassing nearly a third of the modern state of Saudi Arabia, Rubul Khali also spreads into Oman, Yemen, and the UAE. From there, Abdul Aziz and his band went north towards Riyadh. Abdul Aziz and six other men snuck into Riyadh at night through a hole in the city walls. While the rest of his band waited outside the city, Abdul Aziz and the other six men went into the governor's house and quietly overpowered the women and slaves there. Then they settled down and recited Quran throughout the night, waiting for the morning to come. The Rashidi governor of Riyadh slept nearby in the city's fortress. He was completely unaware that his home had been compromised. After the dawn prayer, he walked over to his house where the Saudis attacked him as soon as he entered. The governor, taken completely by surprise, tried to run and sound the alarm. But Abdullah ibn Jalui, one of Abdul Aziz's cousins, killed him before he could get away. Abdul Aziz then ran to open the gates of the city and the rest of his small band came rushing through. They soon had control of the city and Abdul Aziz proclaimed himself Emir of the Najd. Then he sent word to Kuwait for the rest of his family to come join him. Three years later, the Ottomans sent 11 regiments and 14 artillery pieces to support the Rashidis. But despite their disadvantage in firepower, the Saudis defeated the Rashidis, extending their regime to the Al-Qasim region between Ha'il and Riyadh. In 1910, several members of the Saudi family revolted against Abdul Aziz. Sharif Hussein, who at this time was the Ottoman governor of Mecca, used the rebellion as an opportunity to invade Al-Qasim. Abdul Aziz could not deal with the rebellion and the Hashemite invasion at the same time. He signed a treaty with Sharif Hussein, submitting to the Ottomans as a vassal. He also agreed to pay Sharif Hussein 6,000 pounds and let the people of Al-Qasim choose their own governor. As soon as Sharif Hussein returned to Mecca, Abdul Aziz reneged on this agreement. He went on to crush the rebellion, forcing many of the rebels to flee to Ha'il. This experience taught Abdul Aziz he could not rely on his family alone. He needed a military force that was loyal to him and a population pool from which to draw from. The most readily available source were the Bedouin tribes wandering throughout Arabia. For centuries, Muslim dynasties have depended on the Bedouins to fill their ranks. And while the Bedouins were brave warriors, they were also unreliable. They were not very loyal and were known to switch sides on a moment's notice. Abdul Aziz came up with a plan to deal with the Bedouins' restless nature. He decided to create Bedouin settlements that would eventually grow into towns. He believed that if the Bedouins had land and stationary homes, they'd find it more difficult to move around and sell their loyalties to the highest bidder. To assist in this endeavor, Abdul Aziz instructed his religious scholars to preach the importance of settled homes to the Bedouins. His scholars taught the Bedouins that their nomadic lifestyles did not really fit with Islam. After all, Prophet Muhammad, 
peace be upon him, was born in a town called Mecca. He established the early Muslim nation in a town called Medina. Every aspect of Islamic life, from the five daily prayers to the two Eid celebrations, from the birth of a new child to the final funeral prayer, were meant to be experienced in a settled community. The first Bedouin settlement was settled by the Mutair tribe. This settlement, called Al-Ortawiyah, was established in 1912, about 145 miles north of Riyadh. As the Bedouins adjusted to settled life, they began calling themselves Ikhwan, meaning brothers. These Ikhwan should not be confused with Ikhwan al-Muslimin or the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt. Except for the similarity in name, these two movements are completely unrelated. Abdulaziz's plan worked. Within a few years, he had a stable community of Bedouins from which to draw troops. By 1913, Abdulaziz had recuperated from his defeat at the hands of the Hashemites and felt strong enough to expand again. This time, he attacked the province of Al-Hassa on the Persian Gulf Coast. Al-Hassa was under Ottoman authority and they maintained a fairly strong garrison there with about a thousand soldiers and modern field guns. The Saudi forces were supplemented by hundreds of Ikhwani soldiers. These former Bedouins had soaked up the teachings of Abdul Wahab and were fully committed to spreading authentic Islam. The modern Ottoman weapons were no match for the religious fervor of the Ikhwan who believed they were fighting for Allah. The Saudi forces, numbering about 1,500, captured Al-Hassa while the Ottomans retreated to Basra. The conquest of Al-Hassa gave Abdulaziz control of the port city of Khartif on the Persian Gulf. Now he could receive shipments of weapons and supplies by sea and did not have to rely solely on captured munitions. Abdulaziz's cousin became governor of Al-Hassa and he promptly began persecuting the Shiite majority in the region. The Ottoman government, now controlled by the Young Turks, prepared to send several military units to Al-Hassa to deal with the Saudis. But then, World War I started, and the troops were needed elsewhere. Abdulaziz and the British now shared a common enemy in the Ottoman Empire. Taking advantage of this, the two parties signed the Darren Pact in 1915, bringing the Saudi regime under British protection. Great Britain recognized Abdulaziz as the ruler of the Najd, promised to support him against any external threats, and vowed not to interfere with his internal affairs. The British also paid him an annual stipend of £60,000 sterling and gave him 3,000 rifles and three machine guns. In return, Abdulaziz allowed Britain to handle his foreign affairs, promised not to give away any land without British approval, not to interfere with the Hajj, and not to attack Kuwait, Qatar, or the Trucial states. Nothing in the agreement, however, prevented him from attacking the Hijaz. Salafis and Wahhabis The words Salafi and Wahhabi are generally interchangeable. They both refer to people who believe in a literalist interpretation of Islam. 
It should be noted that followers of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab do not call themselves Wahhabi. The word Wahhabi is a pejorative term used by their detractors or people outside the group. Abdul Wahhab actually called his followers Muwahidun or followers of monotheism. In modern times, the term Salafi has gained more traction. The word Salafi means predecessor in Arabic and comes from the phrase Salafi Salihun or the righteous predecessors. The Salafi Salihun refers to the first three generations of Muslims. These first three generations are considered to have been the best of all Muslims. This concept is based on a hadith from Prophet Muhammad where he said what translates to The best people are those of my generation, and then those who will come after them, and then those who will come after them. Hence, we will not use the word Wahhabi when speaking about people who follow Muhammad Abdul Wahhab's teachings. Instead, we will refer to them as Salafi since they also call themselves by that same name. The Battle of Turaba Khurma is a settlement in Western Arabia where the Hijaz meets the Najd. Its governor was a relative of Sharif Hussein named Ibn Luay. Ibn Luay adopted the Salafi Minhaj and invited Ikhwan and Salafi teachers to Khurma. By 1916, the Salafi Minhaj, or Salafi methodology, had taken root in Khurma and was spreading rapidly. This caused friction with Sharif Hussein in Mecca. In 1918, Sharif Hussein sent a small force to arrest Ibn Luay, but the people of Khurma rallied to protect their governor and chased them away. World War I was still going on and Sharif Hussein was too busy fighting the Ottomans to focus on Khurma. His son, Prince Faisal, was with T.E. Lawrence fighting the Ottomans in Syria, while his other son, Prince Abdullah, was besieging the Ottoman garrison in Medina. The Ottomans surrendered to the Allies in late 1918, and Sharif Hussein was now free to deal with the Salafis. He ordered his son Abdullah to arrest the rebellious governor of Khurma. Prince Abdullah obeyed his father and headed south with 5,000 battle-hardened troops and modern weapons courtesy of the British. Confident in his inevitable victory, Abdullah refused to negotiate with Abdul Aziz. He intended to chase the Salafis out of Khurma and then destroy the Saudi kingdom of the Najd. His overtures rebuffed, Abdul Aziz sent his Ikhwan soldiers to protect Ibn Lu'ay and the Salafis of Khurma. Unlike the Hashemite troops led by Abdullah, the Ikhwan traveled light and moved swiftly. They covered hundreds of miles in just a few days, arriving at the nearby settlement of Turaba on May 26, 1919. The Ikhwan attacked just before dawn while the Hashemite troops were still sleeping. It was so sudden, the Hashemites barely had a chance to react. It was an absolute slaughter. Prince Abdullah and several of his officers barely managed to escape, fleeing the massacre while still in their pajamas. And now, the Ikhwan controlled both settlements, Turaba and Khurma, and were less than 120 miles from Mecca. The destruction of the Hashemite army tilted the balance of power in Abdulaziz's favor. Two months later, he led 10,000 soldiers to Turaba and prepared to advance on Mecca. The only thing Sharif Hussein could do 
was complained to the British. Sharif Hussein was a British client, just like Abdulaziz was. The British rushed a message to Abdulaziz demanding he withdraw his troops to the Najd. Abdulaziz reluctantly complied. He did not want to anger the British and he was concerned how the Muslim world would react if he captured Mecca by force. Nonetheless, he knew he had the strength to take Mecca if he wanted to. For now, Sharif Hussein could wait while Abdulaziz focused on his other enemies, the Rashidis. Dealing with the Rashidis After the war, the Allies began dismantling and partitioning the Ottoman Empire. Without Ottoman support, the Rashidis were vulnerable and exposed. The Rashidis were further weakened by the French and British occupation of Syria and Iraq, respectively. But the most disastrous blow to the Rashidis came from within. In 1921, Saud ibn Rashid, ruler of Ha'il, was killed by one of his family members. This sparked a series of reprisals and murders that tore the Rashidis apart. When the Saudi forces invaded Ha'il, the Rashidis were in no condition to defend their capital. Ha'il and north-central Arabia became part of the Saudi domain. Despite the rivalry between the two families, Abdulaziz was magnanimous, treating the Rashidis with kindness. Abdulaziz permitted the Rashidi men to live freely and with honor in Riyadh as guests of the Saudis. When possible, he tried to bring the families closer together by arranging marriages between Rashidis and Saudis. One of these arranged marriages was between his own son, Musa'id, and Watfa, the daughter of Muhammad ibn Talal, leader of the Rashidis. From this union, they had a son named Faisal ibn Musa'id. In a strange twist of irony, Faisal ibn Musa'id would assassinate his uncle, King Faisal of Saudi Arabia, in 1975. In the next episode, we'll return to Anatolia, where Mustafa Kemal is leading a desperate fight for Turkish independence. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a member of Islamic History Exclusive. Visit islamichistoryx.com for more information. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. You can also make a one-time donation by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate or send a tip via Cash App using the cash tag Islamic History. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, 
My name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the Muslim recapture of Jerusalem. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. In the summer of 1187, Salahuddin invades Palestine, leading to the Battle of Hattin. King Guy and the Franks of Jerusalem are defeated, leaving Palestine vulnerable to Salahuddin. After the battle, Salahuddin executes Reynald of Chatillon along with the Templars and Hospitallers. Now Salahuddin can focus on recapturing Jerusalem. And with that, let's discuss Salahuddin's consolidation of Palestine. Consolidating Palestine After the Battle of Hattin in July 1187, the rest of Palestine quickly fell to Salahuddin. Most of the Christian forces in Palestine had been defeated at the Battle of Hattin and were either dead or enslaved. This left all the Frankish castles and fortresses in the area lightly guarded and vulnerable. For the next two months, Salahuddin focused on capturing these remaining Christian strongholds. As his armies swept through Palestine, most of them surrendered without putting up a fight. Tiberius capitulated immediately following the Battle of Hattin, so Salahuddin went for that region first. Focusing on the Christian territories along the North Palestinian and Lebanese coastline, Beirut, Sidon, Haifa, and Caesarea all fell in quick succession. There was one Lebanese city that Salahuddin did not take immediately. Tyre was a small island off the coast of Lebanon. A narrow, man-made strip of land connected Tyre to the mainland, and the city itself was protected by strong walls which the Franks had built decades ago. The narrow strip of land and strong walls meant even a small group of defenders could hold off a much larger force. 